13. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a seat back somewhere around you. Go ahead and uh, use that. If you don't own a Bible, uh, take that and keep that um, as well. So Numbers 13 is where we're going to be, but we are going to do a lot of jumping around um, this morning. And so we've been walking through this series. Um, How did we get here? Looking at the story of God um, redeeming his people redeeming what was broken because of sin in Genesis 3, redeeming what had been severed, and God redeeming that throughout history. Um, the last we had was that God had called uh, the Israelites out of slavery. He had called them out of Egypt. They had been in slavery for 400 years, over 400 years. Calls them out of slavery, guides them through the wilderness, gives them food from heaven, gives them water, guides them by appearing as a, as a pillar of clouds and a pillar of fire, um, gave them the law, to not only help um, give them an identity and a culture, but to help them live the best way possible together. Um, we're starting to see God shape Israel. right? If we remember back to Genesis when we talked about Abraham, God had made a promise to Abraham, and he said, I am going to make you, yeah, you're going to have descendants, those descendants will be a blessing, and you will have land. And so we've seen, as we've walked through the story of the Bible, we've seen the descendants, Israel is a nation, there are Thousands of them at this point. And we've seen them be a blessing. We've seen God uh, bless them and as they have blessed others. And we have seen that that blessing will continue until Christ. The one thing we haven't seen yet is Israel still doesn't have land. For the last two-ish years, they've been living in Mount Sinai. They've been camped out around the base of Mount Sinai. They don't really have a place to be. And so they've been staying at Mount Sinai, and so now this morning we're going to see them begin the journey. They are going to head towards the promised land God had set aside for them, Canaan. The land that he said, this is yours. This is your inheritance. This is your birthright. This is for you. They are going to start making the trek towards Canaan, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, And things do not go smoothly for them. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Numbers chapter 13. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to gather and to sing and proclaim your goodness and to be together and uh, rejoice and fellowship. God, you have promised to meet those who seek your face. Um, So God, we ask that you come now and reveal your presence to us as we make ourselves present to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick it up in Numbers 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. Let's stop there. So the people get up to the edge of Canaan. And the people, though God has said, this is yours, this is for you, we find out in Deuteronomy that, uh, which is kind of a parallel account of what's going on here, in Deuteronomy, the people kind of freak out and say, "Uh, can we send somebody ahead just to check out how things are going? And so Moses says, fine. And we see here in Numbers, he says he takes 12 men, he takes one from each tribe, one from each family, men that are respected, men who are trustworthy, men who are the kind of guys you want to be leaders. And he sends them to go into the land. He sends them to go in for 40 days. You see in verses uh, 4 and following, you see the names of those different men. Um, two guys that stick out. Two guys you want to pay attention to and then list the names there. is In verse 6, we see Caleb. And in verse 8, we see Hosea. 
And Hosea, you think, I don't really remember Hosea in this story. Well, if you skip down to verse 16, it tells us Moses calls Hosea Joshua. See, his original name meant he saves. Moses, we don't have any context as to why he calls him by a different name, but Moses calls him Joshua, which means God saves. We've seen throughout the Bible, we've seen throughout Genesis, that names are a big deal to God, that names are important to God. And this name, this change of name, him becoming Joshua is going to play into the role Joshua will have in the midst of the people of Israel. And so Moses sends the people in. He sends the spies in for 40 days. They go out to scout the land. Now what's key here is when Moses sends them, he sends them to go check things out. He says, take a look, see how the cities are. Are they fortified? Are they, are they small? What are the kind of people like? Um, what is the vegetation? Is it, is, it good for, is it good to live by? He sends them to get a lay of the land. This is not a go in and let's see if this is where we want to be. Moses specifically tells them, go and look around. This is not go look around, come back, we'll vote to see if we're going to go into Canaan. The point here was just to affirm this is where God wants us and to make everyone feel comfortable, but they were going in. This was not going up for debate. They were always going to go in. And so the spies spend 40 days amongst the people. And they come back, and then you skip down to verse 27. We see their report. They come back, and they speak to Moses, and they speak to everyone, and they say in verse 27, they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Remember, God had told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, a land that is good to live in, a land that will provide for you. And he says, the spies come back and they say, it's true. It really is flowing with milk and honey. Check out the fruit. And they brought back, if you hop up to verse 23, it says, they came into the valley of Eskel and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. They brought back this cluster of grapes that was so big, so ripe, so awesome that they had to tie it to a pole and two guys had to carry it. And they say, this is what is already growing in the land. It's awesome. Everything God said about it is good. It's fruitful. It's a great place to live. But, go to verse 28, and they say, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. They say the land is great. The fruit is amazing. But the people, the people are too strong. The cities are too fortified. We can't possibly go in there. The descendants of Anak there. Anak was known, uh, him and his descendants were known as very tall warriors, really angry dudes, the kind of guys you don't want to get meet in a dark alley. He says their descendants, his descendants are there. And not only that, there are all these different tribes who have taken up different parts of the land. And they've been there for a while. They are established. And the way they established themselves was they had wars with each other. They killed each other for this land. They are not going to want another group coming in to try and split the pie. This thing, these cities are too strong. All of these different peoples have gone to war over and over again about this land. I don't think it's a good idea. The spies are trying to convince the people we shouldn't go. And finally, after hearing all of this, Caleb stands up. Caleb stands up and he says in verse 30, let's go. 
Let's do it. Let's, let's go now. Let's gather our stuff and let's go take them. We can do this. They aren't that tough. They aren't that strong. God has given us this. Let's go now. And all the rest of the spies want nothing to do with this idea. And so now they start to escalate what they had originally reported. Skip over to verse 32. And so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy is, is out. Uh, is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw it are of great height. And then we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who comes from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. They say, look, the land will devour you. It's unsafe. It's not that great. It's, it's really not a good place you want to live. It's not where you want to raise your kids. It's not. Which is so different from what they just said five minutes ago, where they said, look, it flows with milk and honey, and look at the size of the grapes and the pomegranates. It's awesome. And now they're saying, you know what, it's really not that great. It's really not that awesome. And everyone we saw there was super tall. As if, like, this is a UFC fight, and they got to, like, worry about the reach. It's like, everyone is super tall. We're not going to fit in. That's going to be awkward. We saw the Nephilim, okay? The Nephilim are, there's not a whole lot of... Uh, there's not a whole lot in the Bible about the Nephilim. Uh, this ties it to the descendants of Anak. And basically, when they talk about the Nephilim, they are a race of people who are portrayed in the Bible as uh, maybe demonic, um, powerful, kind of the way that we think of like ogres and giants in fairy tales. That's basically they, the way they thought of the Nephilim, were like people who are going to eat babies. And they're like, they're all over the place. You don't want any part of that. We should just stay where we're at. We want nothing to do with these people. The story has escalated. The spies are saying, we felt like grasshoppers. They saw us as grasshoppers. We're tiny. There's no way we can take them. The story has escalated. And so how did the people react? Because it doesn't really matter what the spies say. How did the people react? Hop over to verse, chapter 14. And in verse 2 it says, All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The people say, let's bail. Let's get out of here. Let's, let's just go back. You know, at least when we were in Egypt, yeah, we were slaves, but, you know, we had a house. We had somewhere to stay. We had food. You know, I mean, the Egyptians didn't treat us great, but they didn't try and kill us. I mean, it wasn't that bad. There weren't giants. I mean, let's just go back to Egypt. The people have lost total faith. They have lost all faith in God. These same people who saw God send the ten plagues into Egypt, who saw God send the ten plagues into Egypt, who saw God part the Red Sea so that they could walk across it to get away from the Egyptians, the same people who saw God said food from heaven. The same people who saw God send water from a rock who for the last two and a half years have provided for them. They are living in the wilderness. And when I say wilderness, we're talking desert wilderness. There's nothing around. And yet they are living comfortably in Mount, near Mount Sinai. These same people who have seen God over and over again provide for them have lost all faith in him. Moses and Aaron are beside themselves. They don't know what to do. And so Caleb and Joshua stand up. 
And here's what Joshua has to, has to say in verse 8. He says, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred to us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregations said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. Joshua says, look, God is for us. God is for us. He is with us. He will take care of us. Please don't give up. And the people respond to that with, let's kill them. That's a real rational response. Things are getting out of hand. God finally steps in. The glory of the Lord appears. God and Moses have a conversation. God says at one point, you know what? I'm so tired of these people. They keep complaining. They, I can't do enough for them. They have seen that I have taken care of them, and they won't trust me. I'm just going to cut myself off from them. I'm going to depart from them and let them figure it out on their own. Moses, being the patient and loving leader that he is, prays and pleads with God to not do that. Pleads with God to spare them. And so in God, instead, God lays down this judgment in verse 21. But truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. God declares, none of these people are going to get into the promised land. They don't trust me. They don't have faith in me. They continuously complain about it. None of them are getting in. He goes on in verse 24 to say, But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. He says Caleb was the one. He stood up. Remember I said there's two guys that we have to pay attention to, Caleb and Joshua. It says, Caleb stood up. Caleb was for me. Caleb can go in. And if you read down, Moses and Aaron and God continue to talk, and in verse 30, it says God includes Joshua in that same group. He says, Caleb and Joshua, these guys were with me. These guys understood. These guys have faith in me. They get to go into the promised land. But everybody else, anyone else 20 years and older, doesn't get to go in. Not only that, but he tells them, for 40 years, you are going to wander. This idea of let's just cut our losses and go back to Egypt and be slaves, that's not going to happen. You're going to wander the wilderness. And for the next 40 years, you are going to wander until you die. You are going to die out here. And until this entire generation is dead, you will wander. And once they are all dead, then your descendants, your kids, these wives and kids that you guys were so worried about, they will have the opportunity to go into the promised land. And there's a lot going on there. I mean, not only are they stuck wandering in the desert for 40 years, but God has just told them, look, if you are 20 years or older, you got, best case, 40 years left. And then you're dead. Now, I use all of this, and I wanted to start here in Numbers, and this is a very long introduction, to ask this question. Is it fair? Is it just? Really, the big question we've got to ask is, is God just? Because this seems not very fair. Is God 
just? Is God fair? We talk about it all the time, right? We talk about God being just all the time. And he's often spoken of in the Bible as a judge. And that makes people uncomfortable. God is love. God is gracious. God is good. He is forgiving. He is merciful. Those are the things we sing about. Those are the things we celebrate. Those are the things that we say, yeah, God is all of those things. And then we get to God is a judge. And not only is he a judge, but he gives judgments. That makes us uncomfortable. But that's what he is. He judged that the Israelites were to wander for 40 years and die. Was it just? What is justice? What does that mean? What does it mean to be just? Basically, I I put together, I kind of cut and pasted a couple of different ideas of what it means. What does justice look like? What does it mean to be just? And what I came up with is to be based on or behaving according to what is morally right and fair. That there should be vindication and protection for the innocent and the weak and punishment for the guilty and corrupt. And that when there's justice to be executed, when executing justice, there needs to be impartiality. Because without impartiality, there is no justice. There is no true right and wrong. All people need to be treated the same. And I think this is an idea we can all kind of wrap our heads around because this is something that, this is what our laws are based on. It's in the foundation of how, what this country was built on. Right? We all have the same rights. We are all to be treated accordingly. Even in the criminal system, even in the court system, it's you are innocent until proven guilty. You are innocent. You, your standing is that you have a good standing until something, enough evidence has been provided that you are guilty. When executing justice, there needs to be impartiality. So what does the Bible say about God and his justice? What does the Bible say about justice in general? Deuteronomy 32.4. We're going to look at a bunch of verses the rest of our time together. Um, some of them are on the screen. Some of them you can write down and check them out later. Deuteronomy 32.4 says this. The rock... His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This is a song Moses is singing. This is a song that Moses is singing about God, who God is, and and his relationship with God. And he says, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. He is faithful, without iniquity, just and upright is he. And that is an amazing statement that Moses makes if you understand the background and the context of Moses singing this song. In Exodus 17, the people are traveling and the people are complaining to God because they're traveling in the wilderness, they're thirsty, they're hungry. Mostly they're complaining about the thirst. They need water. Their cattle needs water. They complain to Moses. Moses goes to God and says, we need some water here, God. So God says, okay, there's a big rock over that way. I want you to take your staff, I want you to walk over to the rock, tap it with your staff, water's going to come pouring out. So Moses, all the people go over by this rock, Moses takes his staff, taps on the rock, water comes flowing out, the people are drinking water, the cattle get to drink water, everybody's happy, everything is good. You fast forward to Numbers chapter 20, and we see the same situation happening, only now the people are stuck in wandering time. In Numbers 20, they're stuck in this 40 years of wandering. So not only are they angry and upset and grumbling about that, but again, they're once again wandering in the desert, and they need some water. And they complain to Moses, and they say, Moses, we need water. We need 
something. Our cattle are dying. We need water. And so God go, Moses goes to God. God tells him, hey, there's a big rock over there, a little deja vu. I want you to go over to that rock, and I want you to say to the rock, make water come out. Tell the rock to make water come out. Water will come out. Different instruction. First time he says, tap on the rock. Second time he says, go over and just tell the rock. So Moses goes over, and he goes over with the people. The people continue to complain. Moses, what seems to be in a fit of anger, we're not totally sure his motives here, but instead of doing what God says, Moses takes his staff and he hits the rock again. Water comes out. The people can drink. The cattle can drink. Everybody's happy. But Moses disobeyed what God had said. Moses disobeyed the God who said, I will take care of you. Trust me. I will give you water. And so God tells Moses, and he includes Aaron in this decision, but God tells Moses, look, you didn't trust me. You disobeyed me. Moses, you're not going into the promise. Moses, you're going to die before then. You and Aaron are not getting in. And not only are you not getting in, Moses, but Joshua. Joshua, I want you to train up. I want you to teach him how to be a leader. And God pointed out a mountain for Moses and Joshua to go up to, and they go up to this super tall mountain, and it overlooks the promised land. It looks, overlooks this land that God had promised his people. And God tells Moses and Joshua, this is what I am giving you, Joshua. This is where you will lead my people. This is the promised land that you will get to have. But Moses, you're not getting it. So not only does God say, Moses, you're not getting in, but Moses has to hire and train up his replacement. And yet, in spite of all of that, in Deuteronomy 32.4, Moses sings. He doesn't just say it. He doesn't just think it. He sings it. He proclaims it, that the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Even someone who had to receive God's justice, had to receive some of God's judgment, knew that God is just and upright. It is part of who God is. In 2 Chronicles 19, verse 7, it says, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. Be careful what you do. Be careful on the way you live. Be careful on the way that you act because you will be judged. Our God is a judge. He is just. And not only is he just, he is impartial. He is fair. He cannot be bought. He cannot, you cannot sway him with money. You cannot fast talk your way out of something. So be careful with the way you live. Be careful with the things you do because there's no getting out of judgment. He is fair. You can't mess with him. This idea of God being impartial, God not being swayed, is all over the New Testament as well. Paul talks about it in Romans 2.11 and Colossians 3.25. God is impartial. He is fair. He cannot be bought. He cannot be bribed. The Bible continuously talks about God being just and unchanging and unwavering. It is who he is. It is part of him. It is not a learned trait. It is something that has always been a part of God. 
It is important to God. Justice is important to God. Because it's who he is, it is an important thing for us. The importance of justice to God is why he gives the law. Right? We talked about it to, A, it's to set up the people apart, but B, it's to reign in the evil. It's to reign in and it's to make sure that the people who could not defend themselves would be taken care of. We see in the Old Testament, we see laws about how to treat widows and the poor and the foreigners, and we see all these different things that God sets up in the way that the people were supposed to live to take care of, to make sure that things were just. Because in it, the, peop- the way, in the law, the people were given a way to show justice to one another, how to be just and how to be moral. When the people of Israel were growing too big, when they were dwelling in Mount Sinai, and they, the people were growing so big, they were, repro- they were having descendants, having babies, People got so big, Moses couldn't oversee everybody. He couldn't know every situation that was going on. Every, and so what God decides and Moses decides is that uh, they would raise up judges. They would appoint kind of mayors and, and different smaller representatives that the people could go to. In Deuteronomy 16, it says this. It says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, that they shall judge the people with righteous judgment, you shall not pervert justice, and you shall show, not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. You shall not show partiality, you shall not accept a bribe. These are the things, these are the very things that we talk about when, when the Bible describes God's justice. God says, okay, if you're going to do this, if you're going to be my representatives on earth, this is how you're going to do it. You're going to do it the way I do it. You're going to be impartial. You're going to be unwavering. You're not going to take a bribe. You're not going to be able to be won over. These were the things that they were supposed to do. It's, God, it's an overflow of God's character being poured out in their lives. This idea of justice, I think part of the reason we love justice so much, and I know that we love justice because at any time of day, there are 19 different versions of law and order, CSI, NCSI, some criminal procedural show. And I will watch any one of them that I can. NCSI is my, man, Jethro Gibbs, I could watch Jethro Gibbs do stuff all the time. He's like this hardcore Marine dude, and like black and white, good versus evil, he's going to go get the bad guys, and he's going to solve crimes. And we love that, right? We love seeing justice. We love seeing the good prosper and the evil be punished. We want to see justice happen. As people, we want to see good win and evil lose. It's part of us, and I really, I believe it's part of us being made in the image and likeness of God. Our desire to see justice, I believe, is partially because we are made in the image and likeness of God. We have this desire in us, this shadow, this reminder of something, this reminder of one who is perfectly just. He gave us this small imprint of this is what it means, this is what it looks like to be just, and it's in us, and that is why I think we love to see good prevail over evil. Why we want to see that happen? Because we are made in the image and likeness of God. God is just. And because God is just, there will always be consequences to sin and rebellion. Always. Just because you have done something 
or are currently doing something, pursuing some kind of secret sin that you think nobody knows about and isn't hurting anyone because nobody knows about it, just because you haven't gotten caught or, haven't gotten, or you think that you've gotten away with it doesn't mean you will continue to. There are always consequences. There are always consequences. And just because you haven't seen them yet, do not confuse that with God condoning your actions. Just because you haven't seen the consequences of whatever it is, the secret thing that you think nobody knows about, just because you've gotten away with it, you can't, do not confuse that with God saying, yeah, that's okay, I'm fine with that. God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect and there will always be consequences to sin. Because there is coming a day when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, gone is the meek and mild son of a carpenter living from the middle of nowhere with no money. That guy is gone. When he returns, he comes back on a white horse with a big sword and a tattoo on his leg. And he comes back to do what he is meant to do, judge. And when he judges, he will do so with no partiality, taking no bribes. There will be no fast talk. He will judge based on his righteousness, holiness, and justice. That day is coming. Well, Pastor Tim, what about grace? We're under grace. God is gracious. Yes, God is gracious, but God is also just, and those two things are not in conflict with each other. When I was in high school, my junior year of high school, uh, on a Friday, I rolled into the parking lot, and I used to park next to two of my buddies, and uh, they were waiting for me on this Friday morning. And through a short conversation, we all decided we wanted to cut class. We all didn't want to go to school that day. Um, and so we did. Um, we called and pretended to be each other's parents. Long story short, it's a very boring story. We played video games and ate pizza. Uh, I got caught. We all got caught. And we all had to pay the consequences for that. Um, I sinned that day. I did not honor my father and mother. I just straight up lied to them. Um, I lied. I, I, I did a lot of different things that day. Are those sins paid for? Yes. Fully and totally. By the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, my sins are paid for. But there were still consequences to my actions. Yes, God shows me grace by forgiving me my sins, but I still had consequences to those actions. I still had to serve many detentions. And I had a lot of community service hours. And I was put on disciplinary probation. And it affected a lot of different relationships I had with teachers and with different things going on in school. There are always consequences. Yes, God is just. But there are always consequences. And God is just, and he will judge each and every one of us one day. And when that day comes, you have one of two options. Option A is you stand on your own talent, on your own good works, and you think that what you have done is good enough. And you say, God, just based on me, I'm good enough, let me into heaven. The problem with that is that God sees everything. You don't get to hide anything from him. Which means if you want to stand on your own merits, you want to stand on your own good works, it means you have to stand and justify the bad stuff too. It means that day you don't get to just show the good. You have to show him everything. You have to take account for everything. 
You are standing and trying to defend and justify the stuff that you have done, the stuff that you have thought. The stuff that is, if we could put your thoughts on a screen, you wouldn't want to be in the room to watch it. That stuff, you have to stand and defend and try and justify before the holy, perfect God. And you can go that route, but it will not end well for you. It will end in experiencing God's wrath. Experiencing being totally separated from him and cast into hell. That's how option A ends, every time. But there is a second option. You can stand before the perfect, impartial judge and be judged, not based on you, not based on me, but based on the holiness, righteousness, and perfection of Jesus Christ. You can stand and it is through the belief in his life, death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sins, as evidence before this judge that you can stand and be seen as righteous. Righteous means to be in good and right standing before this perfect God who is just. Those are your only two options. Option A ends in hell and torment and separation. Option B ends in life eternal with God. Option B is new life. Option B is something better. For some of you here this morning, you aren't under grace. You are really hard-pressed to stand under option A. You really want to stick on your own merits. You think you can do it all yourself. You're still trying to do things all your own way. That's going to fail you. And all you are doing is storing up for yourself wrath from God. All you are doing is storing up more and more wrath from God. And I ask you this morning to turn away from that. I ask you this morning, yes, God is just, and God as a judge can be a scary thought, but it's not scary for the Christian. It's not scary for the one who puts their faith in Jesus. Because it is then, on that day of judgment, where we are judged based on his righteousness, his perfection, and seen as right and perfect in God's eyes. For those of you who are under grace, for those of you who are Christians, what do you need to repent of? What do you need to cut out of your life right now? What thing that you have convinced yourself isn't all that bad and isn't really hurting anyone do you need to let go of because there will be consequences. Yeah, you're under grace. Yes, God is faithful to forgive. Yes, your sins have been paid for. That doesn't mean there won't be consequences. What is the thing that you are pursuing right now that you need to repent of? Grace is not a free pass to do what you want. There are still consequences of sin, even for the believer. And so I ask this morning, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, and you are pursuing something that you know that you shouldn't, something that you have justified in your heart, let today be the day you're done with it. Let today be the day where you let God and his justice rule. I want to end with this verse, 1 John 1.10. We confess our sins. He is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you even for the fact that you are just, that we know that you are never changing, that we don't have to worry about what kind of mood you're in on a certain day. We know that you are unchanging. We know that we are, anytime we have to deal with you, we will deal with you 
and you will be just with us. But God, even in the midst of your justice, Lord, we thank you for your graciousness as well. For the grace you showed us by sending your Son to pay the penalty for us, to make it possible for us to have a new life with you. God, I pray that today is a day for us here and for your sons and daughters around the world, that today is a day of repentance for some of us. Today is a day where people turn to accept you, and today is a day where we stop pursuing the things in our life that we will have to answer and account for, but God, that we will pursue you, that we will turn away from the sin and the evil in our lives and run towards you. God, we thank you for the grace of the cross. We thank you for the new life that the empty tomb gives us. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. We're going to continue on in worship this morning. Um, the band's going to play a couple of songs. We're going to take an offering in a little bit. We take an offering every week. If you are a guest this morning, if this is not your home church, we love that you're here. Please let the offering plate pass you by. This is a time for us who call CF home to worship, to show that we trust God with our lives, with our eternal lives, and with our finances. And so this is a time of worship for us. If you're a guest here, please let the offering plate pass you by. If you want to put something in the offering plate, you feel like you really need to, uh, that Connect card that, you had, that Taylor talked about earlier, please fill it out if you haven't done so. Put that in there. Um, even if you're a member and you want to put, an, uh, put the Connect card in there, uh, it's a good way to connect with us about op, uh, serving opportunities as well as prayer requests. So go ahead and do that. Um, we're also going to take communion. We take communion every week uh, because this is a time, this is a thing that we get, this is a gift from God for us to remember that God is good and that his justice was shown at the cross when Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And so this morning we have the bread that represents Jesus' broken body and the juice that represents his blood that was shed that gives us the chance to have a new life with him. So the way we do it is you can come into the middle when the band plays, you come whenever you want to come. Um, you can take this, you can take the elements up here, you can take it back to your seat, either way. If you are a Christian this morning, it doesn't matter if you're a member, please feel free to come and eat with us. If today is the day you chose to be done trying to stand before God in your own accord and want to enter into Christ, God's family, and become a Christian, and this is the morning that you did it, come and eat and take part of this awesome meal. Um, we're going to pray together uh, as a collective body as we enter into this time of worship and uh, reflection back to, you know, reflecting on what God has said this morning. And so uh, we're going to pray this morning. I'm going to read uh, the bold stuff that's on the screen. You guys are going to read the underlined words. <sighs> pray with me now. Uh, Lord Jesus, who came to us as a servant and revealed to us the extent of the Father's love, a love that overcomes, endures, and redeems. We worship you as we remember and reflect on your gift of new life through the cross. God, we confess we have sinned against you this week. We chose to rebel. We chose to ignore your spirit. We chose to gratify us rather than glorify you. God, increase our awareness of the daily blessings you provide for us, the things we don't normally think of. We thank you for each new day, for each breath which you give to us. Lord, we pray for the members of this body that have physical needs. We have members in the hospital right now. We have members fighting for their lives. God, heal them. Lord, we pray for Roscoe Village, for our neighborhood, 
that your gospel may flow through these streets as we seek to be ambassadors for you. God, we thank you for this church, your gift to us as we seek to reflect you to the world. God, we lift up these prayers to you, the maker and sustainer of all things. And all God's people said, come and eat as you're ready.